Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? My name is Adam, and you are in the 75th trip down the homeward path. This is my show that I record at the end of the work week. We just came off of hour 55. I'm a husband, father of three, and somehow, someway, we try our best to make some form of competitive magic work. Right now, like most of you, that method for me is on Magic Arena. But that's not what we're talking about this week. So while I was away, we got the rest of the spoilers for Core 21. We got quite a few of the spoilers for Jumpstart. I don't really want to dive too deep into it, but there's a lot of archetypical stuff getting a lot of support. And there is a lot, there, there must be a building on fire here in town somewhere because I've passed like four cop cars and here comes a fire truck. So that out of the way standards already kind of ramp heavy and then we've got cards like azusa joining growth spiral uro um just a number of things at the disposal a number of pieces in the toolkit as it were for these these ramp heavy decks and I would not be shocked to see, you know, a 32 land deck emerge from the other side of the standard format. There's just too much incentive to powering out these powerful cards. It's just mind-boggling. But in addition to that, we got some more cheap innovation. There's some more cheap interaction. Uh, much-needed reprints in both sets. There's just a lot to like about what's going on. There's also a lot to dislike, but that's that's a story for another episode. So with that in mind, we're going to merge fast lane and slow lane into one segment this week because I want to talk about a deck that I am working on through the lens of my research process in building it. And that deck is Grow. It's the archetype that I've loved the most throughout my, my time playing Magic. It's the archetype that I never get right, but I love to play it. It's why I played so much Is It Drink last year. It's why I played um, various forms of Terramander decks this year. It's why I've played just a litany of bad decks over the years. I love playing decks where I start small and then bludgeon you with a blunt instrument while cutting off the axis of interaction you're trying to play on. It It's, it, it's my kink, I think. <laughs> but with that being said, the number of times that I've done this in the past without considering the history 
without putting in the effort of improving my ability to build decks in order to do it. Instead, just trying to fill role player slots out of, you know, pre-existing lists and not really diving deep into the why, but just the what. So let me paint you a picture. And it begins in... God, I can't remember what year, like 2003, 2004, maybe? Probably, no, 2001, 2002. Probably more an accurate year. But the format at the time was extended. And the deck builder... Well, I guess it goes it goes back further than that. I can't remember the year. But for the longest time, and even today, conventional wisdom tells players of Magic, start your land counts at 24. You can go up, you can go down, but you start with 24 and then you adjust accordingly. Well, how do we get to those other numbers? Well, you know, obviously if you're playing a bunch of ramp effects that are going to pull lands out of your deck or require you to have them in your hands, you're gonna want more. But how do we arrive at less other than just having a lower mana curve? Because even still, sometimes your lower mana curve decks can stall out trying to find a desperately needed third land and you end up having to play like the mono red Hazaret deck <clears throat> that only played, you know, four to five cards that cost more than three mana and would frequently find themselves stranded with one or two of them in their hand until they started adding more lands, and that ended up being like a 25-land deck. And that's kind of emblematic of the, the issue of trying to balance mana versus spells. Typically speaking, having more lands is better than having more spells because... Even though the lands are dead draws later in the game, you'd much rather be able to cast the spells earlier in the game. And they always say flood beats screw because if you flood out, you can cast whatever you draw. <clears throat> or if your mana screwed, you're, you're pigeonholed into needing to draw exactly lands and cheap spells. <clears throat> Excuse me. On my way after, after getting home, I'm going to clean up and I've got a doctor's appointment to find out why I keep losing my voice but that's something we'll get to on a different day but even even today you you build a deck on arena and the auto land tool adds 24 lands to your deck and Alan Comer was one of the first to dare to dream to go lower instead of trying to push his land counts up to make sure he hit land drops he was trying to find out how low he could go. And that resulted in Turbo Xerox, a deck named exclusively for why or how quickly identical copies of it sprung up all over the west coast of the US. It was a mono blue deck that played 17 lands but almost never were, you know, like was never, frequently was, was never behind. Like it would, it would just hit its land drops. It would keep casting spells. It would, you know, catch up. It would start to pull ahead later in the game and then it would win and 
you'd be sitting here looking at this pile of weird blue cards and wondering what in the world just happened to you. Well, there are three major tenets of Turbo Xerox that still apply to deck building today. The first is cantrips is mana fixing. Cantrips being, in, in this case, cards that cost one or two mana, see multiple cards, and replace themselves. In Comer's deck, he had access to Brainstorm, Portent, and Foreshadow, I believe. And the way the, way the math worked out for Comer's deck is for every two of those cantrips you played, or for every four of those cantrips you played, you could cut two lands. Or, you know, to put it in, in lay terms, for every two cantrips you play, you can conceivably, at least, trim one land. Now, the scales tip a little bit depending on the quality of the cantrips at your disposal, because cards like Brainstorm and Portent are infinitely better than cards like Opt and Discovery Dispersal. They just are. But there's some degree of truth to the idea of playing cantrips in order to lower your overall land count so that early in the game you can use them to find lands and late in the game you can use them to avoid drawing too many lands. The second tenet is a low threat density, but your cantrips help you find them. Like, the thing about cantrips is they are at least theoretically extra copies of whatever it is you're looking for. You know, in standard 2011 and Callblade standard, one of the most one of the most telling articles I've read was a Mike Flores piece about how to use preordain correctly, which is not to jam it onto the battlefield on turn 1 just to use your mana. You used that card when you were looking for something. You know, if you mulligan aggressively to find Stoneforge Mystic and you keep a one-lander Stoneforge Mystic hand, well, maybe you're preordaining on turn one to find your second land to cast Stoneforge Mystic, and that makes sense. Or maybe you've got the one land, you've got the lands you need, you've got the, the rest of the top of your curve ready, but you need to find the Stoneforge Mystic to fill in the gaps. Preordain makes sense there. You're trying to find something. But if there's not something you're actively seeking, there's no reason to run this card out. Is the general premise behind playing your cantrips correctly. Early in the game, they represent additional lands, additional cheap interaction. Late in the game, they represent a way to win the game or a way to shut your opponent out of coming back. And that's the beauty of cantrips. I've done an episode on them before when it comes to evaluating them and whatnot, but how you use them is just as important as how powerful they are. Even in standard, I see far too many players keep a seven-card hand and just jam an opt on turn one so they use their mana. Why? 
Save it until you know what you're looking for, especially if you're on the play. That's just not a play I like making. And then the third tenant for Turbo Xerox is low curve plus cantrips equals a low land count, but you're high on action. So the cantrips function as additional lands early and function as whatever you need them to be later. That What that means is when other decks start to flood out, you aren't as susceptible to this problem. You may flood out on card draw. I've had that happen more than once. On, you know, four or five mana, and I'm trying to find something to, to, to wrestle control of the game away, and my cantrip will draw another cantrip, will draw another cantrip, and now I can't cast anything else. But even that is a little bit more viable, a little bit more like long game friendly than sitting there and not using your mana. So the combination of a low mana curve and a low land count allows you to double spell earlier in the game. It allows you to really leverage my favorite abstract concept in magic, which is tempo. Tempo being the idea that you can, the idea that you can win games by resolving more spells than your opponent, and in some situations you treat, you know, if your opponent's deck cares specifically about the combat phase, bouncing a creature is almost like them losing their turn. You know, countering a, countering their Nissa is like is time walking. So being able to do that while progressing your own board because you have a relatively low land count but you hit your land drops and then later in the game you're more frequently flush with spells in your hand. It's a big deal. And then we have the, the deck that inspired, that inspired a teenage boy from rural West Tennessee. And that deck was Miracle Grow. That was circa 2000, probably circa 2001, I believe, is when Invasion released. That sounds right. And Invasion gave us an all-star creature in Quirion Dryad that's on its way back in Core 21, which is a big part of my inspiration for wanting to work on this deck in the first place. Korean Dryad is one in a green, buys you a 1-1 creature, and she says whenever you cast a spell that's white, blue, black, or green, or white, blue, black, or red, rather, put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. So she can grow real thick, real quick. Alright? And Comer, realizing this, pushed this deck as far down that road as he could. Now, one of the one of the key tenets for for Comer's deck, the cantrip power level of Miracle Grow was unreasonably good. Comer had access to Brainstorm and Gush. Gush, that card that's banned in Vintage and Pauper. And Legacy. 
that card that reads zero mana draw two cards like that's really really good brainstorm in conjunction with gush if you started to somehow magically we'll get to it in a minute gush brainstorm I can't remember if there was another one involved here or not those were the two big ones the ones I made notes about when you have access to this many cards that really really help push you ahead and cost one mana or less you're doing something you're doing stuff in addition the deck was powered heavily by free spells. We already talked about Gush. But in addition to Gush, we had access to Force of Will, Days, and Land Grant, and Foil. And Land Grant was one of the key contributors to this deck. Because a hand with multiple Land Grants was a hand with multiple lands in it. Because on turn one, you land grant's alternate casting cost is reveal your hand that has no lands in it. Cast land grant for free. Well, you would land grant, go get Tropical Island. Play Tropical Island. Uh, oh, wait. I don't have any lands in my hand. Play another land grant. Go get another Tropical Island. Leave up days. Pass turn. Okay, you don't do anything I care about. In step, we'll brainstorm. Uh, put these two on top. Draw. Land. Quarry and Dryad. Gush. Draw two. Put a counter on her. Pass turn. Oh, Force of Will, your removal spell. Put a counter on her. Draw. Land. Cast Brainstorm. Draw three. Put two lands on top. Oh, look, my hand doesn't have any lands in it. Cast Land Grant. Like, you just keep going so far down this rabbit hole to the point that Comer's deck played a grand total of ten lands. Ten. One zero. So with the combination of cantrips to help smooth and these free spells, one in particular land grant that really pushed it to the maximum. And then the last thing was emphasis on a the where uh, Turbo Xerox was more like a traditional like aggro control deck where you're trying to kind of occupy that middle space and catch up against aggro in order to land a threat and win or against other control decks you would want to land a threat and then protect it miracle grow was very much in the second camp it wanted to start really fast and then jam you know force of will days counter spell foil all did a really good job of protecting what should be a fragile setup. You've got either Query and Dryad or Gaia Skyfolk wearing Curiosity. Those were your threats in Miracle Grow. 
that's not that's not a lot but it was enough and the duck took off like wildfire pardon the pun because wildfire would be really good against this thing if it resolved but the next step was to apply mid-range theory to it in the hands of master deck builders Ben Rubin and Brian Kibler when they innovated what they called Super Grow with the release of Odyssey for the same extended format. And that was to add some more lands back to the deck in order to add more standalone powerful cards. Instead of getting cute with stuff like Curiosity and Gaia Skyfolk and, you know, cards like foil and being instead of buying all the way in on it they bought like three quarters of the way and then just played some really big dumb stuff to help balance it out uh, werebear and mystic enforcer were the two really big ones that they were playing both of them being threshold creatures that get bigger uh, werebear was a one one that gets plus three plus three when you have threshold or seven or more cards in your graveyard while Mystic Enforcer was a, I believe, a 3-3 with protection from black. They got plus 2, plus 2. When you had Threshold. So both of those creatures just, as I, I make this reference a lot, those creatures allowed you to kind of punch above your weight class and interact favorably in combat with bigger creatures kind of at a, at a moment's notice thanks to all the cheap for, or free instants in the deck. You could swing in with a werebear into a bigger creature and if your opponent blocks maybe this mental note flips over and then you cast a you know, cast a daze for their attempted removal spell and all of a sudden it's big. All of a sudden it has the right to bear arms. That, to hang a pair of bear arms on the wall. Anyway, the slightly less radical 14 lands due to the splash, because when you start adding a third color, the, the number of lands has to go up just to make sure you can, you can play everything. Mystic Enforcer was a big deal, but there was another card that he splashed for, and that was the last tenant for Super Grow, which is the introduction of actual hard removal spells instead of counter magic and bounce. Counter magic and bounce could frequently be enough. I will grant that freely, land grant. I will land grant that freely. But sometimes something slips through. Sometimes you don't have the counter. And in the case of this deck, like, Swords to Plowshares was great in this deck because it still pumped your Quarry and Dryad. It still put your card in the graveyard for Threshold and it was another one mana spell that you could dig to with all these cantrips that you were playing. <sighs> was it blue for Force of Wealth? No. Is that okay? Absolutely. So the idea that that you take the, the premise of using cantrips as mana fixing, a low land count and mana curve, and then you marry that to some classic mid-range theory of 
if I've got bigger creatures than you, it's like I'm playing removal spells. And then if I also just play some removal spells, I neutralize the advantage of your creatures while still retaining all the advantages I have of playing this low land count with all these spells that will help me dig to find my powerful stuff. And that's where we arrive on today. Quarian Dryad is in Corset 2021. Is this deck something that's going to get built and be an utterly dominant force in standard? I doubt it. But what it offers is if you've got your lands, if you've got, you know, if you've done the work on Arena to grind out and craft all your shock lands, or at least the shock lands and teamer colors, if you've done the work to, to grind out and trade aggressively into your shock lands and enemy fast lands and paper, it gives you a place to start on building forward. So, using those lessons, let's talk about what, how I'm looking to build Teamer Grow in Core 21 Standard. And it begins with the fact that we have Quirion Dryad, but unlike Kibler and unlike Kibler, Reuben, and Comer, we also have another creature at two mana that grows out of hand really fast, and it's one that I've been playing with a fair amount in Sprite Dragon. And notably, they're the same rarity. For what it's worth. Sprite Dragon being a red and a blue buys you a 1-1 flying haste. Every time you cast a non-creature spell, put a plus one plus one counter on it. It's a little bit less restrictive, don't you think? So that gives us two of those like powerhouse jam this on the table on turn two, and if it if you untap with it, you can start to snowball an advantage. That's the first thing to look at here. The second, cantrips aren't great, but we have some. We have Opt. Currently, we have Discovery and Dispersal. We have Anticipate. We have Shimmer Possibility. And, oh yeah, we're getting one in Core 21 that I'm really excited about in See the Truth. It's look at your top three, put one of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom. If this spell was cast from somewhere other than your hand, put all three of those cards into your hand instead. Now, this is that's the, the point that I'm going to have to work on the most. is like trying to figure out ways to use that. And it may end up being more correct to play Shimmer Possibility over See the Truth. Simply because I don't want my opponents to get leverage on me with cards like Robber of the Rich. Like, if they Robber of the Rich and hit my See the Truth, they feel like they just won the lottery. But another cantrip that's available if we want it, it requires us to not play as much permission, is Light Up the Stage. Where you chip in and then you light up the stage. You put a counter on your creature. You see two cards. A counter spell revealed to light up the stage feels like a dead draw, but it frequently forces your opponent to play off curve or play something you don't care about instead of making the optimal play. And in that, in that vein, it sometimes feels like it did its job. 
the key balance here is if we're going to play a lot at the stage in this deck, we've got to play more proactive cards and less reactive cards. But on balance, we have access to some powerful cantrips in standard. You know, light up the stage plus see the truth is actually just bananas. Because, by the way, if you hit see the truth off light up the stage and then you cast it during your next turn, you're drawing three cards for two mana. And it works under Narset Parter Avails because you add the cards to your hand, you don't draw them. That's really good. You know, if we end up going down line at the stage route, maybe we have to play a couple of one-drops. I don't know for sure. The build I'm working on currently is more akin to the uh, the Just Guy Heroic decks. A little bit all less all-in on Protect the Queen. You know, we're not playing a bunch of God's Willings and Karametra's Blessings. But... The basic premise of stick an early threat, protect your lead, let it let it get bigger and beat them to death is the, the core tenet for the deck. A notable difference between this deck and, for example, Super Grow is our splash in this deck is actually for Quirion Dryad. This version of the deck is very much base, is it? Yes, it is. It's base blue-red. And being based blue-red means we get a lot of, like, casting non-creature spells matters cards. That's good. That's really good for a deck like this. I can't wait to play with it or play around with it in Historic with access to Young Pyromancer. But the real gem, the real cherry on top, so to speak, is... The last advantage that this deck has over grow-oriented strategy of the past. We have adventure creatures. Notably, we have two of the most powerful ones, the ones that get played the most. Bonecrusher Giant and Brazen Borrower. And Brazen Borrower is outside of a lot of people's price ranges, and I get that. It does have the benefit of being in a challenger deck, if that's something you want to look for. That's helped bring its price down some. But it's an unfortunate fact that that card is expensive. And, I mean, we can make do with something like Love Struck Beast. It covers a lot of the same ground because it will pump one of your grow creatures in Sprite Dragon, and then it will be a, another creature with which to apply a lot of pressure. A Love Struck Beast on the battlefield in conjunction with a like a poorly timed top deck of one of our grow creatures. If our opponent doesn't have a way to just kill the Love Struck Beast, and their plan is to just remove the 1-1 one -one so it doesn't attack, well, all of our grow creatures and all the rest of our Love Struck Beasts allow it to just be a 3-mana 5-5. Five -five. So even a suboptimal one like the adventure creatures cover a lot of ground here. They cover, they patch a lot of the holes, as it were. Brazen Borrower adds tempo removal and another body. The front half powers up both creatures. The back half still grows Quirion Dryad. Bonecrusher Giant, very much the same way. The front half is one of your much needed removal spells 
ways to catch up against aggro. Damage can't be prevented is randomly relevant from time to time. Your opponent, you you attack, your opponent casts God, God's Willing after blocking. You cast Stomp at their head. Well, now the protection doesn't work. So, I mean, Bonecrusher Giant, Brazen Borrower, Love Struck Beast are all reasonable options within this shell. And I know it sounds like I'm just building a worse team or clover deck, and I probably am. If we're being if we're being real honest about it, I probably am. But I've always loved playing grow. And given that I am not looking to to try and make a make a run at the players tour in the, the immediate future, I feel like my time can be best devoted to trying to find things in the format that are not being explored well. And one of the advantages to this deck is you get a lot of the a lot of the similar advantages that the Jeskai Heroic deck with Lyris' companion had before the companion change. Namely, two drops that grow, the ability to protect your setup with efficient spells, and the ability to occupy sort of a tempo-based mid-game where you get to double spell a lot, you see a lot of cards thanks to cantrips. The core is there. If I rattled off the, the initial list verbatim, it's four Quarian Dryad, four Sprite Dragon, four Borrower, four Bone Crusher, four Opt, four See the Truth. Probably should be Shimmer Possibility. But then it's uh, three Mystical Dispute, or I, I've got Slashes on it. That's like Mystical Dispute, or Quench, or Aether Gust. And then to negate to essence scatter slash essence capture, depending on how greedy you want your mana to be. And then we have more removal spells because I can't help but feel like with all the team of reclamation that's getting played, we're going to start seeing a lot of aggro popping up. So we're playing all four shocks because shock is like reasonable with all our grow cards. And it's another, you know... It gives us another way to close the game out between Bone Crusher, Stomp, and Shock. We can beat them up a little bit in the early game and then just peel burn spells to close it out. It's embarrassing. It's not great, but it's another lane. It's another angle. But then one of the most exciting ones we're playing is Domri's Ambush. Because in conjunction with Sprite Dragon Aquarian Dried, Domri's Ambush is actually really good. Because we don't put one counter on them, we put two. And the other one gets one. Like, what, if you've got both, one of them gets two counters, the other one gets one, you kill something, and then you attack. That's a big game. When you, when you simultaneously apply a lot more pressure, because three extra power is a lot more pressure, that could be the difference between two, a two-turn clock and a three-turn clock. So when you get to, in, in tandem with your removal spell, functionally shave a turn off your combat clock, that's, that's a big deal. And then, I think for the rest of them, it was, it was four shock, 
two Domri's Ambush, and three Scorching Dragonfire. Dragonfire being a clean out to cards like Uro. It's card advantage negative. I will grant that. If we had something like Magma Spray, I would rather play that. It would do. It would serve the same role. Notably, the irony here is even if they have. Oh no! I guess it doesn't work. Anyway, uh, even if your card deals no damage, Uro dies. Uro gets exiled. So if for whatever reason your Scorching Dragonfire doesn't deal any damage, you still exile Uro when it dies. So you get it on the way in. It's a clean answer to a lot of things in the standard format right now. Cleans up most of the creatures you want to kill. Cleans up a lot of the Planeswalkers after activations. And just really sort of surges you ahead on the board. Especially if you've got one of those grow creatures down. And then last but not least is the mana base. We're playing 20 lands. 20 because we're only playing 8 cantrips. And as I mentioned before, they're not as good. I could see going down as low as 18 if you wanted to maybe add something like light up the stage to the deck. In turn, trimming some permission to add some additional cantrips. You know, trim maybe the essence scatters and like trim the essence scatters and one of the uh, like one of the aether gusts or mystical disputes. Trim that to play the two. Play your play two light up the stages and like a crash through or something like that just to keep seeing cards crash throughs relevant on all ends like I really really like the way this archetype is structured we still have shocklands in standard which is like the only reason this deck is remotely viable but it also ports well into other formats the historic version is going to be really interesting because it's going to be really close to what we have available in pioneer because we'll have Young Pyromancer, Spell Pierce, Dive Down. Um, oh, I had it and I lost it. Maybe something like Grapple with the Past is something you want. I don't know. You know, but the idea behind playing cheap creatures that get bigger in conjunction with cantrips and remove, cheap removal spells and permission that allow you to interact with the board and then dig for ways to close the game out once you start to pull ahead. That's at the core of this archetype. That's the core of this deck. It's one of the decks I've been trying to build right for the longest. And the more I researched it, the more interested I became in trying to do it again. Because it's been a labor of love that has never rewarded me very well. So we're going to see if it does any better this time. With that in mind, that's all I've got for this week. So, where can you find me? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. I'm Adam Spain. You can find me in the Facebook group we set up for the show called the Homeward Pathfinders. You can find me, if you're a patron of the show, 
or you want to become a patron of the show, you can find me at patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Uh, becoming a patron of the show gives you access to the Patreon Pathfinders Discord, where we talk about episode topics, we go through, you know, there's there's some tier rewards you gain access to that get, you, get your stuff into episodes. And while you're at it, while you're perusing the web, don't forget to stop by our sponsor, puremtgo.com. They've got a massive collection of fantastic magic-related articles and podcasts and videos and stuff out every single day. And do me a solid. He's not a sponsor, but my LGS is finally reopening this weekend. Goosesgames.tcgplayerpro.com uh, Goose has been around for a long time. He is, he's been around long enough to see me quit playing Magic for five years and then come back. That's how long he's been around. <laughs> uh, and he was around maybe in an unofficial capacity, but he was around before that, well before that. So he's reopening. He does online sales. I do not have a promo code currently. It's something I will have to talk to him about. Uh, but I'm excited. My LGS is reopening. Uh Another thing I'm contemplating doing, I really need more like back and forth with people about, is doing arena FMs with the listeners of this show. If you are interested in that, let me know. I want to do it, but I need to know there's enough people before I start putting in a whole heck of a lot of effort for it. Because, you know, it's hours off my life and hours I don't get to spend, you know, heavily interacting with the kids. So. All that out of the way, it's time to go into my favorite thing, the end of every episode. It's time for, let's get them pulled up, hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. And we, we got a few. Is that, is that new? That feels like it's new. Yep, we got new ones. All right, first is from Dev at Strictly Better MTG. Uh, another one of my favorites because Dev, like me, is a purveyor of budget magic. And Dev was very simple with his. The picture is Kite Sail Freebooter and it says Freeboot Reboot. I said, it's not quite a joke per se, but I'm not one to argue semantics. We have Drock V Popper. Wife, the puppy keeps stealing Guinness's food. He's such a bully. Me, maybe we should change his name to Boros. Wife says, what? <laughs> if you don't play a lot of popper, you don't know why that joke's funny. Oh, come on, pull it up. Next one we have is from Emma Partlow, a columnist at tcgplayer.com. Also a purveyor of budget magic content. Says, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty inscredible. Before sharing the link to her article, Modern on a Budget, Scred Red. That joke tells itself. It's really good. <laughs> we had Brian Sharp, longtime supporter of the show. 
uh, shared the image of the the jumpstart planes that actually has a dog pictured and featured prominently in the art on the front. And it says it's a fetch land. <laughs> and last but not least, certainly not least, we have a thread from Brian DeMars. And this thing is a doozy. What is your all-time all favorite Magic the Gathering wind condition? He says, I'm a fan of the mid-90s slow jam. I like the way you work her at antiquities. I got to power it up. It's Mishra's factory. Brian. And then we have Drock V. Popper says, all-time all favorite wind condition? Mill. Maybe that explains why I'm O-Life. We have uh, Morphling, and it says, the Morphling says, now that's what I call magic, late 90s alt pop. If power creep goes crazy, then will you still call me Superman? <laughs> Rule 1043A, a player can concede the game at any time. Brian says, I respect that. Mind Sliver's my second choice. <laughs> oh man so many good ones so many good ones <laughs> that's all I got for today that's all I got for this week everybody again I hope you enjoyed it I hope like me you've got a pet project you've been looking into if you do dig into it really deep go into the history find out as much about the archetype as you possibly can because for me, it felt like it gave me a, a new perspective on how to build those decks. And no, that doesn't mean I'm going to build a new perspectives deck. I've got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> but with that in mind, we're going to sign off by reminding you, everybody's going through stuff right now. There's a lot of stuff going on in this country, in this world. So just remember when you're interacting with people, never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, build decks, be kind. We'll catch you next week. Thanks, everybody.